0: Hello and welcome to The World Ahead on Economist Radio. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist. In this future-gazing podcast series, we consider provocative prophecies and speculative scenarios to gain a different perspective on the present. But right now, amid the global coronavirus outbreak, it feels as though we're living in a dystopian sci-fi scenario already. So in this episode, we'll be taking a number of different future-gazing approaches to look for lessons on how to deal with this extraordinary situation. We'll find out what a future mission to Mars could teach us about self-isolation on Earth
1: today. You need to understand that crew cohesion is the thing that allows a mission to be successful. And if that fails, then it's all for naught. And we'll find out
0: what simulating the outbreak in the form of a popular video game can tell us about how the pandemic might play out in the next few months.
2: The key scientific aspect in the game is the basic reproduction number. This is a number that shows how many people Can be infected by a single person.
0: But first, the idea of a black swan event was introduced by Nassim Nicholas Taleb, a mathematician and investor, in a 2007 book of the same name. It's an unexpected event with a low probability of happening, but that has a large impact and falls outside of people's normal expectations or experiences. So there have been many references to the COVID-19 outbreak as a black swan, notably from Sequoia Capital, Goldman Sachs, Forbes magazine, and so on. But Michelle Wooker, an American author and analyst, has a different analogy. This isn't a black swan, she argues, but a somewhat larger animal.
3: I call this sort of event the obvious, probable, high-impact event, a grey rhino. It's the idea that something big, two tonnes, is coming right at you with a horn. Is going to gore you if you don't do something. It gives you a choice.
0: Now, I think a lot of people would think that the idea of this outbreak at the moment is not obvious. You know, no one saw this coming.
3: Well, lots of people saw this coming. And by this, I have to say there are really two things. There's the pandemic and there's the financial crisis. Pandemics happen over and over and over again. In fact, my great-grandfather died in the great flu pandemic in 1918, in the second wave of it. We get pandemics very often of various severity. Of course, this coronavirus pandemic is much more severe than most people have seen or could imagine. But we've seen many, many warnings about pandemics the World Economic Forum's Global Risks Report had pandemics on the top 10 this year. There have been a number of recent simulations. In fact, under the Trump administration for the first several months of last year, there was an exercise that ended up with the warning that the U.S. is not prepared for a health emergency like the one that we're seeing. Similarly, on the financial side, Many people, the smartest people on on Wall Street, the ones I admire, have been warning for a very long time, I've been part of those conversations, saying that the loose monetary policy around the world has only been blowing up a giant stock market bubble, not supporting the real economy, and we've seen so many red flags that a big problem was coming, that anyone who says that they couldn't see it couldn't imagine it was an ostrich with their head stuck straight in the sand.
0: Now, you've written a whole book about the obvious dangers that we're ignoring. So obviously, we've now had one of these come along. What are the other obvious dangers that you think we should be paying more attention to in the future?
3: When I started researching the book, the first thing that came up and came up over and over again was climate change, water is one of the big ones that comes up. For me personally, since my career started as a financial journalist, financial crisis is a very big one that I pay a lot of attention to. I look at the relationship between both of those and economic inequality, some of the structural problems that keep the economy from growing and staying alive, particularly in this difficult time.
0: What does all this mean then in practical terms for politicians and business leaders and indeed for individuals? What should we be doing differently? And do you think that this outbreak will encourage greater awareness of these other grey rhinos?
3: I sure hope that this outbreak encourages a lot more awareness of gray rhinos and a real switch in in mindset from waiting for bad things to happen and looking behind you and saying, oh, that was a black swan. Nobody could have seen it coming. I'm just going to wash my hands of it. And to get people to start holding their elected officials, their business leaders, community leaders, and themselves accountable for the big things in front of them and what they're doing about them. I always ask people, to ask themselves, what's my gray rhino? What's the big thing that's coming at me? What am I doing about it? Is it working? And what can I do better? That sort of question is so shockingly simple and obvious, if you will, that people don't always pay attention to it. But it's true. It's, it's, It's almost counterintuitive that the most obvious things are the ones that we don't pay attention to and when we're more aware of that vulnerability, we have a lot of power to keep from getting trampled by things that other people are ignoring.
0: Another way of putting all of this, I suppose, is that there are more clues to the future lying around in the present than we may want to admit.
3: Absolutely. And a part of my message is that it's okay if you missed something in front of you because it's, it's human. But it's not okay once you realise how vulnerable you are to missing the obvious, to keep ignoring it. So step up to it.
0: Okay, well, I'd like to ask you for one prediction of your own, if I may, at the end, based on exactly what you've just said. One of the things where we can see symptoms of a problem, climate change, is we can see, you know, greater numbers of wildfires and record temperatures and and so on. What's your prediction? A lot of people are saying that the coronavirus outbreak is going to make it easier to deal with climate change because people will recognise that it's important that we take action against these big problems. Other people say, no, it's not. This is actually going to distract attention. What's your prediction?
3: My prediction is it depends. One of the questions that came out of the grey rhino for me was why is Asia so much more sensitive to grey rhinos than the West? And then that started extending to individuals. There hasn't been enough attention yet to the differences among people, among organizations, among governments, in how sensitive they are to obvious problems, what they're going to do about them and how much they're held accountable for that. Uh, We saw uh, huge advances in behavioral economics, particularly with the work of uh, Daniel Kahneman and uh, and many others, uh, showing how many human cognitive biases we have and how those get in the way Of making good decisions. And there's a new wave of research coming out that says, hey, not everybody has the same amount of loss aversion. Not every demographic group, not every educational group responds the same way to a problem. And so what I'm working on now is trying to understand what the differences are. What are the conditions that make one person more likely to open their eyes and deal with something and other ones not? The gray rhino dealt with it much more at a a structural and policy and organizational level. And the coronavirus shows us how important it is for every single person to do their part. And it's fascinating to see that some people are still going to spring break on the beach in Miami and not social distancing, and other people are staying in. So we need to understand better what makes some people more likely to respond to climate change and, and not. And of course, I have a whole bunch of uh, answers to that too, but we'd be here all day.
0: Brilliant. Michelle Wooker, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Now, it's often said that the first person who will walk on Mars is alive today. In other words, that the first human will reach the red planet within the next 25 years or so. A lot of work is being done to develop the rocket and life support technology that would be needed, but there's also been research of a different kind into the psychological challenges that a Mars crew will face. This small group of people will have to be able to get along while also being isolated from the rest of humanity. This sounds eerily familiar to billions of us around around the world who were under lockdown during the coronavirus pandemic.
1: The most important thing to simulate for this mission was the feeling of isolation. So for instance, we didn't have physical contact with anyone who was outside the mission.
0: Kate Green took part in a simulated mission to Mars in 2013 as part of a NASA research project called High Seas, along with five fellow crew members. This involved living in a simulated Mars base on a Hawaiian mountain for four months, and she describes the experience in her upcoming book, Once Upon a Time, I Lived on Mars.
1: We needed some resupplies at various points, but they were always dropped off in an airlock and we were given a warning to not be outside on an EVA, you know, wearing our spacesuits, walking around when some of those deliveries were to be made.
0: So what can this simulated future teach us about coping with self-isolation today? And how does it compare to what many of us are facing right now?
1: Well, the first thing that comes to mind in terms of differences is the fact that we all signed up for this mission, knowing very well what we were getting ourselves into. So we, we knew that we were going; it was going to be hard, but for four months we were going to soldier on and provide our psychological and physical data to NASA in hopes that this could be useful for a future Mars mission. So... In that regard, I think that there's something different about what's happening right now. The situation now is very few of us have been training for this and thinking about this and wanting to experience this sort of isolation. And it's hard to know what's going to happen next.
0: Some people might say, well, surely the hard bit about getting to Mars is, you know, building the rockets and the life support systems and stuff like that. How important is the psychology here?
1: The psychology is immensely important. I mean, if you are an engineer and you're only thinking about the mechanics of the thing, then you've forgotten the most critical and actually most volatile component of the system. And this is something that Kim Bin said, the head of the High seas project, has said again and again. She says, if you think about a Mars mission as being a system of systems, then the human part of that system, if that breaks, it can be just as disastrous as a rocket blowing up. And that is absolutely correct. You need to understand that crew cohesion is the thing that allows a mission to come to completion and be successful. And if that fails, then it's all for naught.
0: So the $64,000 question is, you've been through... The <laughs> this situation for four months similar in many ways although admittedly some differences what specific lessons or tips would you offer people who are going into this self-isolation situation now
1: really i do feel like it is so important to make food special and i'm seeing this all over the place anyway people instinctively know this that you need to come together around food you still need to celebrate and food is the way that culturally historically we've always done that so this isn't the time to to forget about that this might even be the time to ramp it up and do some extraordinary things with food you know find some flavors that you've never used before in in meals and also remember the comfort foods the maybe the foods that you ate as a kid that you haven't even thought about in a long time bring those back and really savor the flavors and the emotional connections that food can help give you
0: Another of the things that you've talked about is the importance of rituals and sort of familiar routines, but also the importance of mixing things up and and breaking those routines. So how does that apply to the current situation?
1: Yeah, I think that rituals are really important because it's really important to mark time. You know, on our mission, what we were doing was a countdown and it seems like right now everyone's counting up. For myself in particular, that's not necessarily the most fun psychological thing for me to do, but I do think about in terms of, okay, every week I'm watering these plants or I'm changing my sheets every couple of days. On high seas, we watched a movie twice a week, once on Wednesday and once on Saturday. And so it was a thing that marked time. And it was a little frustrating to do sometimes because some of the movie selections um, weren't my favorite. But at the same time, it was, you know, we all came together to do this and we all agreed to do this. And it was a good break from the regular routine.
0: Do you have any particular tips on getting on with people that you're having to spend a lot more time with than maybe you, uh, you were used to?
1: When you live in close quarters with people in an isolated environment for a while, you really do have to get good at taking a deep breath and letting it go. Letting almost anything go because most things aren't that important to get worked up about. Now, if there are things that happen again and again, a respectful conversation about how that's affecting you and how it might be affecting others might be welcome. And then if someone's having that conversation with you, to take a deep breath and recognize that, you know what, we all want this living space to be a good living space for all of us. So I can hear what you're saying and get on with it. One of my crewmates said that, in effect, what we were doing was trying to negotiate a marriage between six people, because it's that sort of level of communication and respect that's required to make something like this work.
0: And what about keeping yourself motivated?
1: One thing that really did help on the high seas mission was remembering that we were there for a reason. And that was often hard to remember in the day-to-day. You know, we're filling out these food surveys. We're... Um, Conducting all these experiments on ourselves and each other, and it gets tedious, and you can get annoyed easily, and you can just get really frustrated and feel like, What's it all for? But at times like that, it was very important for me to think about the purpose of the experiment that I was participating in, which admittedly is a far cry from the actual thing, which is a mission to Mars, which is a somewhat easier thing to attach purpose to, especially if you're an astronaut on your way. So I had to. do a little bit of mental contortion to get to the spot where I felt like no, this is important, what we're doing is important and even if we can't see the results of it now even if we won't know the results of it in 20 to 25 years this is potentially very important and I think that there is something similar happening right now what we are doing, the way that we are isolating ourselves is extremely important and it's also almost as invisible as the purpose of the simulated Mars mission, because we can't see right now that what we're doing is making a difference. But if we can all do this together, understand that like we need to have a shared purpose to make this effective, that sometime in the future, in the weeks and months ahead, we can be making a huge difference in the way that this virus affects the entire world. And what about this
0: possibility that the first person to walk on Mars is alive already? And probably in lockdown somewhere. Do you think that a a future astronaut might actually be able to learn in the other direction from this situation?
1: That's a really great question. And I think so. And I hope that there's something that we can all learn from this time. And it makes me hopeful that the sort of wisdom that we take from Earth to another planet will be informed by this experience now and what what we learn.
0: Well, thank you very much for giving us your tips from a, a Martian future.
1: Thank you for having me. I really do hope it can help.
2: The COVID-19 pandemic is bringing immense uncertainty to citizens, governments, and the global economy. Economist Radio is drawing on the expertise of our international network of correspondents to report on the crisis. On the science... The more you understand about the mechanism of a virus, the more places there are that you can glue it up. On the economics...
3: The banks are in a really interesting position for this crisis because last time they were maybe the cause of turmoil and this time they could be one of the arms through which the impact of the crisis is dulled.
2: And on the politics of COVID-19. Some worst case scenarios have a very large number of people dying. That is going to trigger very, very grave conversations about whose fault this is. For the latest on the pandemic
0: and more, join us on Economist Radio. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, to a video game that's been rather topical lately. Plague Inc, which came out in 2012, is a simulation strategy game in which you play a deadly pathogen and your goal is to spread around the world and wipe out the human race. It's been a popular game for many years. It's been downloaded more than 130 million times. It's won a string of awards and has even been used by America's Centres for Disease Control and Prevention as a valuable tool to teach the public about outbreaks and disease transmission.
2: Plaguing at its core is based on realistic science, but it's also a game and to work as a game we had to make various trade-offs and sacrifices.
0: James Vaughan is the game's creator and the founder of Endemic Creations. Plague, Inc.'s popularity has spiked recently as people have downloaded it to learn more about how pandemics spread and what can be done to stop them.
2: We started from a point of reality and then I worked out what things needed to be adjusted or tweaked. The key scientific aspect in the game is the basic reproduction number, which is also known as R0. And this is a number that shows how many people can be infected by a single person. And that number is what powers all of the infection algorithms in the game and gives it its realistic spread and the exponential growth, which people often struggle to understand. We also factor in the interconnected worlds, the travel systems through air and sea transmission in particular, And we try to make people think about the different transmission routes, the different ways that diseases can impact people and the consequences of that. And then we also try to model how governments would respond to a disease outbreak and the things they might do, like shutting borders or distributing face masks, trying to ban social gatherings and so on.
0: So is there a particular message or lesson that the game is trying to get across?
2: A key thing to say first is that I didn't set out to make an educational game at all. My game educates purely by accident. All I did was try to make it realistic. And it just so happens that if you make a game based on reality... It does teach people things. So I never set out to communicate certain messages. But one of the most interesting ones for me is the concept of exponential growth, how rapidly disease can spread if left unchecked. I think it's it's very hard for the human mind to get around the concept of exponential growth. But once you're looking at our game, it's a very... It's a very basic graphical picture of a map is that you're, you've zoomed out of the world like a, a Petri dish. You see these numbers increasing each day and it's terrifying. And, and we're seeing that in real life at the, at the moment. I think another thing which it shows quite well is the importance of government actions on it and how if you don't have governments doing things to control the disease it does just spread unchecked if they're not trying to restrict travel i mean greenland shuts down its borders very rapidly and suddenly you can't get your disease into there like these kind of containment measures shutting down international travel etc if you can do it early enough they are highly effective if you do it too late which is not what normally happens in plague inc then not effective at all if the disease is already in your country it does really
0: give you the benefits okay now one of the signs that the game is accurate and realistic enough to be useful is the fact that the centers for disease control and other people have used it in education and training what sorts of things have they done with it
2: so we have a lot of teachers and university lecturers getting in touch with us saying how they use it in classrooms or they're sharing it with their pupils, they're getting to have a look at it. So I think where Plague has value is not in teaching the core principles, but in reinforcing them. Teachers will teach their normal class and then they will give them Plague to go along and, and go away and play with and it reinforces what they've just learned and it gives them points they can talk about in their next class and because it's a game, it's fun to play, people play it, and they, they They get taught things without even realising they're being taught things. Being invited to talk to the CDC in Atlanta was unbelievably um, fascinating for me. Getting to, to see all these people who are doing this stuff in real life, whereas I just made a game about it, was wonderful. And it's been a really useful source of expertise and information ever since. So I think the role of Plague Inc. can be to help make a big, scary topic accessible
0: okay now in recent days you've made a couple of announcements that have essentially you're you're using the game in a slightly different way tell us about those you're you're adding a new game mode i believe
2: yes yes that's right so ever since covid19 first sort of became apparent of the the scale of it back in january we've been as a company we've been working out how we can help what kind of things we can do and a, a key thing for that was reaching out to various agencies to offer financial support. So we've recently donated to CEPI, who um, fund vaccine research around the world, and they're focusing on COVID-19 at the moment, and also the WHO and the Global Outbreak Alert and Response Network. And we were talking with all these people at these agencies and all these experts, and something we were repeatedly asked about was can you make a a version where you're trying to save everybody in the world and you're playing as the humans instead of the disease? Can we focus more on how you can successfully contain a disease, the elements of vaccine research, the implications on healthcare system capacity? These are all things that we feel we can dig into more and hopefully it will help players feel they understand more about what's going on in the world today. So, that's something we're working on at the moment. We're working on it at full speed. We don't have a specific plan for when it's releasing, but we're hoping to release it soon. And then once we've got it ready, we'll be making that freely available to everybody as a, a new game mode.
0: Now, do you think, given that you're going to have this new mode that allows people to practice fighting diseases, do you think more world leaders and political leaders around the world should be forced to play this game? Perhaps it would teach them a thing or two?
2: Yes. I think whether it's our game or a simulation from someone like the the CDC or the WHO, I think that it's very hard to fully understand what something means until you can see it playing out in front of you. And I think something that might have been surprising for world leaders at the moment is is that concept of exponential growth. We, we spoke about it earlier, but I think that you can intellectually understand exponential growth, but until you see what that means for the numbers of people infected, it's very hard to take it seriously.
0: Where else do you think simulation can help with policy making and exploring future scenarios more broadly?
2: I think there's a huge number of other areas where um, A gamified approach to simulation can inform and educate people. For me, a huge one at the moment is climate change. That's something which I would love to look at at some point. And again, we've had lots of people talking to us about that. The risks of of cybersecurity, that's another big one for us at the moment. I always feel that if you know enough about a subject any subject is interesting. There's a huge amount of potential over there. We're just a very small team. So we we have to kind of pick our subjects and and go for them one by one.
0: Brilliant. Well, James Ford, it's been fascinating. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And you can keep up to date with all the latest on the coronavirus outbreak with our daily podcast called The Intelligence. Find it on your podcast app or online at economist.com slash coronavirus. And to subscribe to The Economist, visit economist.com slash radiooffer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Tom Standage, in London,
1: this is The Economist.